form of a servant was made in the likeness of men, so also we are to humble ourselves. In lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Verse 3. Verse 4, look not every man in his own things, but also on the things of others. So that there's a spirit there of humility that esteems others above self. That's the only possibility of laying aside all competition, laying aside all strife, and walking then in a gentle, kind manner, one with another. Instead of comparing ourselves with each other, instead of esteeming ourselves above others, we show ourselves those who are examining ourselves in light of God and in light of what God requires of us. And the result then is an awareness of God's grace, God's goodness, and a life of thankful praise before him. We shine as lights in the midst of this world. The passage strikingly is not admonishing us to shine as lights. It's stating, in essence, you will. Because of God's work of grace in your life, so that God's children in the midst of this dark and wicked world shine. And the difference isn't of self, it's all of God. It's the wonder of God working in us and causing us to differ. God assuring us that our humility and our life of thankfulness is not in vain. And God working in us the blessed assurance that that salvation is sure and true. We need to know this. And we rejoice this morning in God's work of grace in the life of Mr. Hensley as well as all of our lives. God took a man while he was in prison and God used others to minister to him, including some who were members of the Protestant Reformed churches. And as a fruit of that labor of love, God brought him to understand and to see his sin, to confess the wonder of God's grace toward him, and to live in the knowledge of that glorious salvation and that light. And we together seek to shine forth and to show forth God's praise. We take this passage under the theme, Shining as Lights in the World, noting God's marvelous grace, the salvation that is worked out, and finally, all for the glory of God. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. We read in verse 13. The commands and the implications that are concluded here in this section of Scripture are placed in close connection, as we stated, with the marvelous character and nature of God's grace. The apostle writes here to the elect, and he does so in verse 1, stating the servants of Jesus Christ and all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi, in chapter 1.1. And the reasoning of the apostle is this. Christ took upon himself the likeness of human flesh, a servant. He was made like unto a man, and he humbled himself, and he became obedient even unto death, the death of the cross. And God, through that humbling of him and then exalting him has seen fit to work a wonder of wonders so that at the name of Jesus Christ every knee should bow and acknowledge him as Lord and God's at work in you he's at work in me by his spirit working in us to humble us with a view to exalting us showing us our sin exposing our weakness our inabilities in order that we might put all honor all praise, all glory to God in Jesus Christ. And so, in essence, he's saying, fellow believers in Christ, 
Because Jesus Christ atoned for your sins on the cross, because Jesus Christ was obedient in your place, because he was faithful, and because he poured his spirit out upon you, you know the fruit now of his work within you. And that fruit is such that he's working in you to will and to do of his good pleasure. And now you are to show forth that praise. You're to shine forth as godly witnesses in the midst of this world. Believing in God through Jesus Christ. Crucifying your old members that are on the earth. Putting on Christ because it's God who's working in you that faith to believe. You desire to walk in every good work. Why? Because God is the one working that desire in your hearts. Now that's in contrast to the wicked world in which we live and the darkness of our nature. By nature, we're in darkness. And by nature, we're proud. And that darkness is the darkness of sin and unbelief. Walking in darkness, we only see ourselves. We don't see others. We don't think about others. We don't think about God. And we don't consider God's will in God's way. We don't believe in God. We don't walk in a way that would give him glory according to good works. We're just pursuing our own pleasures, our own desires. We're making a mess of our lives and we're walking in the grossest of sins. That's what we are by nature. Walking in darkness, we are not able to see the way. And so what do we do? You children know if your house is dark and you can't see, you're going to stumble around. And it may well be that you fall down the stairway and you get badly hurt. If you're out in the middle of the woods and there's no light and you can't see, you're stumbling in the woods and you're going to fall, you could experience severe injury. Such is the situation. We are in darkness. And in the midst of that darkness, by nature... We are not able to see the way in front of us. We're not able to see the way that we ought go. But the apostle here is stressing the wonder of God's grace. But God, almighty God, has taken hold of you. He's drawn you out of that darkness. He's done a wonder of wonders. He's worked new life in your hearts. And as a result, he's given you now to be able to see with a vision that's not earthly but spiritual. And the result is we now see light in the midst of the darkness. We now cry out to God for his mercy. We see the wonder of his grace. And what do we do? We repent of our sins. We walk in obedience before him. We humble ourselves. And we prostrate ourselves before the wonder of his mercy. And we're assured you will not die, but live. That's the wonder of God's mercy. God takes our lives and he turns them completely around so that now instead of living for self, pursuing my own will, my own way, now I'm living in the pursuit of God, his glory, and for his honor. That person who utters a longing for the salvation of God, who shows remorse for his sin, who confesses his need for Christ, reveals the wonder of God's work of salvation in his or her life. Now, how do we come to this longing? How do we know the wonder of this work in our hearts? This itself is evidence of salvation. And we know it's a wonder of regeneration. God takes that which was dead and he gives life. He replaces our hard, stubborn hearts with that which is a soft, fleshly heart. And that's the wonder that is spoken of in the canons of Dort. In the back of our Psalters, on page 69, 
We have the Canons of Dort, third and fourth head, Article 12. And it speaks of this wonder, this wonder of grace. And this is the regeneration so highly celebrated in Scripture and denominated a new creation, a resurrection from the dead, a making alive, which God works in us without our aid. But this is in no wise affected merely by the external preaching of the gospel, by moral suasion or such mode of operation, that after God has performed his part, it still remains in the power of man to be regenerated or not, to be converted or to continue unconverted. But it is evidently a supernatural work, most powerful, and at the same time most delightful, astonishing, mysterious, and ineffable, not inferior in efficacy to creation or the resurrection from the dead. This is a work of God. This is not anything that man is able to accomplish. This is a work so powerful it's compared to God speaking and everything coming to pass in the wonder of God's creative work. Later on, in that article, whereupon the will thus renewed is not only actuated and influenced by God, but in consequence of this influence becomes itself alive. God giving a new heart and now causing that heart to affect then one's will, one's desires, so that now the child of God lives unto God. This didn't mean that the fathers believed that the sinner's activity after regeneration is the sinner's part of his salvation. And that was emphasized again in Article 14. God produces both the will to believe and the act of believing also. In other words, salvation is all of the Lord. God takes those who are dead, those who are in the midst of darkness, those who are living for themselves, who are experiencing all kinds of strife and all kinds of trouble in their lives, and God's work in them and through them is to give them a life that's from above and to transform now their walk and their conduct. God makes us active in that salvation. The Holy Spirit dwells in our hearts and the Holy Spirit kills that old man in principle and renews us so that now that which controls our lives is Jesus Christ. The power of Jesus Christ by His Spirit living in our hearts and leading us now along the quiet waters, leading us in the pastures that are green, showing us by His illuminating Word the way that we ought go, shining His light upon our pathway. Beloved, one thing is sure, when God works this wonder in the hearts of His children, the result is that we're humbled. And God gives us the grace to take on that mind of Christ. All the work of regeneration in the lives of men and women, children, young people is God's work. The willing, the doing, it's of God. The faith, the repentance, it's of God. The laying aside of sin, the putting on of Christ, the walking worthy of the vocation with which we've been called, that's God's work. And when God commands and when God speaks the command in the hearts of his children, he works by his spirit. And he stirs them up to obey that command. He not only sounds forth the call, but then he works in the heart a response to that call. God prepares the soil of the heart so that that soil receives the word and walks then according to those works that Christ has before prepared that we might walk in by his atonement and by which he works us in his spirit. 
by His Spirit in us. To separate then in the preaching the exhortations of Scripture from the gospel is error. To separate the obedience of the believers in repentance, faith, conversion from the gospel fails to be faithful to the grace of God. God's powerful grace is such that it transforms. To lay a one-sided emphasis on the exhortations, on the obligations that the Bible places without setting forth the gospel is to preach not the whole counsel of God, but, but a portion of it. Paul didn't preach that way. Neither did the other apostles and prophets. Through the Bible, the command to obey is always accompanied by God's work of grace in the hearts of his children. And combined, they constitute then the gospel. God said to Abraham, Abraham, I am thy God. And then he said, walk before my face and be upright. The idea is not, Abraham, I will be your God if you walk before me on the condition that you walk before my face and are upright. The meaning rather is this, Abraham, I am your God. And because I am your God and the God of your salvation, you will walk before my face and you will be upright. The Canons of Dort again in the fifth head, article 14 on page 75 in the back of our Psalter state. And as it hath pleased God by the preaching of the gospel to begin this work of grace in us, so he preserves, continues, and perfects it by the hearing and reading of his word, by meditation thereon, and by the exhortations, threatenings, and promises thereof, as well as by the use of the sacraments. It is God that worketh in you, both to will and to do, of his good pleasure. Beloved, this is the antidote of all pride. I did not make myself to differ. You did not make yourself to differ. It's so easy to become confident in our own strength, to rest on that, and then to start looking down on others because of what we perceive in our own life as to what we've done and what we've accomplished. Paul insists here, everything, the willing, the doing, it's God's work. And if God were to step out and withdraw himself from us, we would be doomed. The psalmist sings of this in Psalm 107. Then they cried unto the Lord in their trouble, and he saved them out of their distresses. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and brake their bands in sunder. Jehovah God, by an act of sovereign mercy and grace, rescued those who were in bondage, those who were in the darkness of unbelief, and he gives us to know his glorious light. That's the message of the gospel and the message that the apostle here is setting forth. And so he says in verse 14, do all things then without murmurings or disputings, understanding this work of God's grace in your heart and your life. Be humble. And the fruit of humility is a life of thankfulness, a life of praise. I'm not living for myself, I'm living for God. And when I learn to submit to God and His will, I then learn also to live with others. When someone is living for themselves, what happens? Especially two faults are going to prevail. They're going to become those who are contradicting everybody else, looking down on others, and it's going to lead to open contention then in their life. They murmur because they didn't get their way. They involve themselves openly in disputes because they didn't get what they want. And life is all centered around themselves. 
And troubles then are created in marriage and families and all kinds of relationships within the church. The wonder of salvation that God gives us is that it transforms our hearts and our lives. And the apostle here is getting at that. This is what Christ has done for you. He humbled himself in order that you now are not given to strife, disputing, vainglory, but again in verses 3 and 4, in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man in his own things, but every man in the things of others. Our lives become a witness. And our lives become a testimony to the power of grace. That God is at work within us, and the power of that grace is such now that he's working in us the will and the desire to do his will. Our lives are a witness. Now we know that all of our lives are going to be a witness, either for good or for evil. When we're involved in strife, we're bringing shame to Christ. Rather than shining as lights, we're living in the darkness. But by God's grace, we live in humility and we live in peace one with another. And we show forth then that spirit of Christians. And so this is a salvation now that we're called then to work out. So given that glorious wonder that God is working in us to will and to do of his good pleasure, he calls us in verse 12, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. The idea is that by God's grace and power in our lives, the work of salvation must be increasingly visible. The word sanctification, the word Salvation here is applying to that aspect of salvation that has to do with sanctification. And sanctification has to do with being separated from sin and consecrated to God, being holy. Paul is not able to be with these saints. That's evident from the context here. He longs to be with them. Because he's not able to be with them, he's not able to see what's going on in their lives. He's not able to witness how they're living and how they're walking and how they're conducting themselves. He rejoices in the faithfulness that has been exhibited before, but he's not able to keep a close monitor on their lives. And so he entrusts them to God and to the power of God's grace. And he sets before them this calling. To work out your own salvation is to praise and glorify God while you live your life in the midst of this world. Every single day, you say no to that old man of sin and you say yes to God and the things of God's kingdom. And it involves a continued, strenuous battle. And we know the nature of that battle because we yet have that old man within us that now lives in the midst of a regenerated child of God. And so this is a process in which God's children, by the power of the Spirit, play a very active role. It's a pursuing. It's a following after. It's a pressing on. It's set forth in the Bible as a contest, as a fight, as a race. It's that which is grueling. It's set forth as a war. A war on three fronts, as we know. Our flesh, that old man of sin, the world in which we live, and the devil. And this requires making use of all of God's appointed means. God gives us his word. He gives us prayer. He gives us the sacraments. And our desire is to make use of these means in the midst of this battle. It's one thing to say, I'm a child of God. It's a whole other thing to live it and to show it by my walk and my conduct. 
that I'm living unto him. It's one thing to say, I live to God's glory. It's another thing actually to be walking in that manner that shows forth the praise and the glory of God. It's one thing to say, as I forgive my debtors. It's another thing to do that, to live in a manner that reflects that I'm forgiving those who sin against me. Through the almighty power of the Holy Spirit, we put on that new man by saying yes to what's good, saying no to what's sinful. You hate sin and you seek after what's good. That's working out your salvation all the day long. Am I doing that? Am I saying no to sin? Am I saying yes to what's right, what's good? Am I doing it in every area of my life? Guarding my eyes, not allowing my eyes to feast on lust and pornography and other sexual sins. Guarding my heart that I not become proud and lifted up in pride above others. Fighting those desires, those temptations. This sanctification is God's work of grace by His Spirit working in us in such a way that we grow, we increase in godliness, in grace, and sensitivity to sin. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. God is performing a work by which He's calling us to turn away from the earthly and to live increasingly for the sake of the heavenly. And in that, he's calling us then, again in the context here, deny yourself. You're not to be living for self. Evidence that God is working in you is that you're denying your lusts. You're denying those pleasures. You're denying those pursuits in order to submit to his will, confessing his will alone is good. Beloved, this is a wonder that God has worked in us by his spirit. In principle, we're sanctified. In reality, we understand there's room for growth and development as long as we're here below. And we experience that. We look back on our lives and we realize with shame the sins of youth, things that we engaged in that we ought not have been. And God works in us a greater sensitivity to that sin. We mourn over the ways that our actions impacted others. At the time, we didn't realize the tremendous evil effects of our actions on others we cry out for grace to pursue God to pursue his glory in everything that we do and we work out that salvation with fear and with trembling an awe a joy an awareness of the wonder of God's work now notice the way in which it's worded here in our text and note the connection between verses 12 and 13 Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Not work out your own salvation, but it's God. In other words, the calling comes and then we dismiss it because we say, oh, but that's, that's something God has to do. That's not something that's my responsibility. Nor is it work out your own salvation, then God will, as though it's somehow a condition that's dependent on me. Both extremes, that I need to do it, and it's so much my responsibility that if I don't do it, I'll never be able to be saved. It's a condition that I have to fulfill, or I don't have to worry about it, because after all, this is God's work. Notice the Holy Spirit, inspiring this passage, does not use but, does not use then, but uses for, of him, 
through him, unto him are all things. To him be all the glory. The possibility of this high calling is found in God alone. And at the same time, God doesn't minimize the fact that he's created rational, moral creatures who will walk unto him and will show forth his praise. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. We know the horror of sin. And we know what our sins deserve. We deserve hell. And as a result then, there is this fear, this trembling. We realize my sorrow for sin is never as deep as it ought be. We realize that my working is never as diligent as it ought. I'm so selfish still. I'm not pursuing God's will as I ought. We realize how weak, how unworthy we are. And God drives us then from all laziness on the one hand as well as from all false security on the other hand. The idea here is not that we're living with a half-heartedness, a divided mind, trusting in self and living in sin in a way that our life is compartmentalized, that we separate Sunday from the rest of the life. No, we're living here in a spirit of wholeheartedness. We're living in a spirit here of trusting in God, walking in humility, seeking not to offend God in any way. And we're doing so in the strength and the confidence that God is the one who began this good work in me. He's the one who's going to bring it to its fulfillment. I look to him. What wonders he's performed for me. He's been with me in the past. He's going to continue to strengthen me going forward. And I walk in his strength and I look to his spirit to be my guide and to uphold me. And what's my goal? To live unto him. To live a godly witness. To show forth his praise. The whole point of the passage is work out your own salvation with fear and trembling for it's God which worketh in you. Why? For his glory. To show forth his praise that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world. God has made us to be lights in the midst of this wicked world. How did God give us to be lights? How is it that we are able to shine? Because Jesus is the light of the world. And Jesus came into this world and through his work, he now shines in the midst of darkness and illuminates us. He takes hold of us as his children. And he doesn't just shine the light on our pathway so that we can see the way that we're to go. But he shines it in our hearts, exposing our sin, bringing us to repentance, causing us to be guided and directed in such a way that our minds also and our will delight in and seek after the things of his kingdom. That light, God who is rich in his mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us in Jesus Christ has quickened us together with Christ and has made us alive. At the cross, he conquered all the power and dominion of sin and through his resurrection, he earned us that life, that spiritual life that's from above. He then sends his Holy Spirit into us that that spirit might show us the way that we're to go. What is that light? It's the light of faith. 
We go forward by faith. It's a believing heart that looks to God, that confesses God, that walks according to God's will and God's way. It's a believing heart that knows God and loves Him and shows forth His praise. That light in us is the knowledge by which we receive the things of God's kingdom. To know how great my sins and miseries are. To know the wonder of what Jesus has done for me. And to be motivated in thankfulness to live unto him and to show forth his praise now and to all eternity. I am consecrated and devoted to God. Now what a joy that God has made us to be lights. Lights in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation. Now the idea there of nation is not to specify one specific nation, but as a reference here to all the generations of men that have been born in the midst of this world and among whom we live. Although we have that light of God, we live in the midst of those who have no light whatsoever. They're darkness. And the way is evil, it's crooked. Notice these words leave no room for the idea that there's a little bit of good in the worst of men. In a world of depravity, a world that's given over to sin and darkness, God shines his light and he places his children in the midst of that world that's given over to darkness. Depravity and total depravity are on the foreground. God is truth. His word is truth. He's the light. But the wicked of this world live in darkness. They make no attempt to walk in the ways of God, in the ways of his word. They make no attempt to give him the glory and the honor that is due unto his name. And so the word perverse here means twisted, crooked. They're distorted. God has rescued us from that crookedness, that distortion. They themselves are not only distorted and twisted, but they take God's word now and they twist it. They distort it to serve their own will and their own pursuits. What a contrast, beloved, the passage sets here for us. You, beloved, have been given to know a wonder of wonders. And as you experience the wonder of being baptized into Jesus Christ and knowing the precious truth of the gospel, live in the midst of this crooked, perverse world as lights. Light and darkness are opposites. They don't mix. In the midst of this darkness, shine forth by faith. We have hope. We have joy. We live in the light. We have life. We walk in love. How does that light become dim at times in our lives? Through sin. We're not walking in the hope, in the joy. We're not walking as diligently as as we ought. We stumble, we fall into sin, and we're like those who are lost in darkness. Our light is not evident as it ought. When we live in the world as though we're no different from the world, we're engaging in the same activities, the same goals, then we're not shining, we're not distinct. Work out your own salvation. For it is God who's at work within you. He's working the willing and he's working the desiring. He's the one who's working all things here in order that you might live in a manner that is evident, that is outstanding. As we study God's word, God works in us an awareness of his will and he works in us a knowledge of our sin and we turn from it and we seek to walk in faithfulness to him. As we pray 
as we study his commandments, as we meditate upon his word, God works in us that awareness increasingly of the way that we ought go. And he gives us the knowledge of the joy and the hope that are ours in him. We live in this world positively according to his word and his commandments. In the midst of sickness, we testify to the wonder of God's grace. In the face of death, we testify to the hope of the resurrection. Though we sorrow, we don't sorrow as those who have no hope. There's a joy, there's a witness, there's a light that shines. But especially, what does it say here in verse 15? That ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation. Blameless and harmless, children without rebuke. The word blameless means free from fault. The idea is that nobody can get a finger under your character. You're not living a two-faceted life as one who's two-faced, one who's a Pharisee. You're living in sincerity. You're living in truth. You're not mixing evil together with that which is pure. But you're walking in a manner that reflects a love for God, a delight in the things of his kingdom. And when sin is pointed out, you repent. You turn from it. You don't try to justify your sin. You don't try to continue in that sin will be harmless in such a way, which means here that we're not mixing wickedness with darkness and light in such a way then that the light is dimmed, but we're those who are showing forth God's praise in a brilliant manner. And then without rebuke means that nobody has any reason to admonish us. We're not walking in a way that others feel inclined to have to come in order to expose our sin and to correct us. Holding forth the word of life that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I've not run in vain, neither labored in vain. The apostle's concern here is to see those with whom he labored glorifying and honoring God. Every pastor, every elder, every parent has that desire. It's not about me. It's not about the fact that you make me look good. It's about God. It's about his glory. And our desire is to see that God's children are walking in a manner that reflects his praise and his honor. The reason of that shining is that Christ is in me. And the word, by his spirit, creates that life. Jesus, as the word of life, and the life of Jesus Christ now, powerfully guiding and illuminating us. God has taken us, and God has embraced us into his family. We are baptized into Christ. And as those who are baptized into Christ, our sins are forgiven and we are consecrated to God in order to live unto him, to show forth his praise. He works so in our hearts and in our lives that he is to be glorified and that his is the praise and the honor that characterizes our lives. Beloved, by his grace, we turn away from self. By his grace, we do not live in the pursuit of our own will, our own way. By his grace, we give evidence of that word of life. How is that evident in your life? How is it evident in my life? This is the testimony of those who have been regenerated, those who have been bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, those who have been entrusted with the doctrine of God, those who are busy 
They're busy working out their salvation in such a way that they live in obedience and godliness and that they show forth praise to those around them in order that God's name be exalted. As those who know the wonder of God's work of grace, may we show forth his praise. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, we thank thee for the darkness out of which thou hast plucked us. We thank thee for the wonder of thy light and life and the love worked in our hearts. Keep us from strife. Keep us from envying. Give unto us that wholehearted desire to live unto thee. And as we walk in sanctification, as we seek to be faithful to the calling thou hast given, grant unto us by thy word and spirit that humility, that blessed assurance that we are forgiven, that we are washed, that we are cleansed, and that our life is hid in Christ to whom we owe our all. Amen.